Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Across the rich world, you can sense the tension as house prices start to slip or plummet. But there's one country where upending the balance is particularly dangerous. We learn about the unusual property market in South Korea. And if you gather enough data, usually the truth will out. And that's no less true when listening to popular music. Our correspondent trawls through three decades of hits to learn what it is that makes a chart topper and how that is changing. First up, though. Today marks two weeks since massive earthquakes hit Turkey and northern Syria, turning the region into the site of a colossal humanitarian disaster. Officially, more than 46,000 people have been killed. Of those, almost 6,000 are in Syria. But in reality, that number is probably far higher. The northwest of the country, where most of those deaths have occurred, has already been shattered by more than a decade of civil war. Yet far from providing the means to help his people, Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, has arguably compounded the situation. He seems determined not to let this disaster go to waste, using it to ease sanctions on his brutal regime. Since the earthquakes hit northwest Syria two weeks ago, we've seen more than 140 trucks from the United Nations cross into the region carrying tents, heaters, cholera testing kits. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. But the number could have been much higher, and the demand for aid in northwest Syria is certainly much higher. And the reason for that is because Bashar al-Assad has spent years trying to block help from entering that region. But in the wake of this kind of devastation, this does seem like a real opportunity for at last some good press for Mr. Assad. Why has he continued to block it? To understand why, you have to look at the state of Syria, which is no longer a country. After a decade of civil war, it has been carved up into this patchwork of statelets. You have parts of the northwest that are controlled by either rebel groups or occupied by Turkey. You have the northeast, which is controlled by a Kurdish-led administration. And then you have about 70% of the country that is actually controlled by the Assad regime. All of these areas are impoverished, all of them to greater or lesser extents are cut off from the rest of the world. If you focus on the Northwest, parts of it are controlled by Islamist rebels, and the strongest of those rebel groups was formerly al-Qaeda's Syrian affiliate. So in the mind of the Assad regime, this is a region teeming with terrorists and extremists, and it needs to be cut off from the world, and that has been their policy for a number of years now. 
In truth, this is a region home to more than 4 million people, most of whom are destitute civilians who are still opposed to the regime. And really, that's why the regime wants to keep it cut off from the world. And even after this disaster remains cut off, but you, you mentioned some aid is getting through, how has it worked so far? The rebel government in the Northwest has been very reluctant about accepting offers of help from other parts of Syria. It's refused offers from the regime in Damascus. It also, shortly after the earthquake, turned back an aid convoy that was organized by that Kurdish-led government in the Northeast. There's a lot of bad blood after a decade of war, and there's some understandable paranoia in the Northwest about offers of help from the regime, which has a history of weaponizing aid, everything from robbing aid convoys as they went to besieged areas to sending expired food to hungry people. And so for that government in Idlib in the northwest, they want aid to come via Turkey. Since 2014, there's been a UN Security Council resolution that allows the UN to deliver aid from Turkey into northwest Syria without the consent of the regime in Damascus. But Russia, which is the Assad regime's ally on the Security Council, has been trying for years to shrink or even stop those aid shipments. Since 2020, it has forced the Security Council to limit those shipments to using just one border post between Turkey and northwest Syria. And unfortunately, that border post was in an area that was quite badly damaged by the earthquake. And so that hampered the flow of aid just when demand for aid was highest. What Assad has now agreed to do is to let aid flow through two additional border posts between Turkey and northwest Syria, and that should help to ease the passage of these convoys into the northwest. And what do you make of that change of stance, the allowing of aid through new routes? I think it's self-interested rather than benevolent. Assad has been something of an international pariah for the past 12 years, both in the Arab world and in the West. Now, what we've seen even before the earthquakes was that the Arab opposition to him was softening. You've had countries like the United Arab Emirates reopen their embassy in Damascus. But you now have even officials in Saudi Arabia, which was a staunch opponent of the regime, saying it's time for a policy change. Over the weekend, the Saudi foreign minister was speaking at the Munich Security Conference, and he said, to paraphrase, we now have to accept that Assad is here to stay. And so the regime feels like this is its moment to emerge from the diplomatic wilderness. And what they would really like to do is to push the West to ease the sanctions, which in the regime's tellings are hampering earthquake relief. That argument is not true, but that is the story that it is trying to tell. And making a small gesture towards the rebels in the Northwest is something that they think might give them some good PR in a moment when they really need it. So you say that the sanctions are not the reason that aid has been hampered. What do you mean by that? You can look at the list of planes that have landed at the airport in Damascus over the past two weeks carrying earthquake aid. There have been dozens of flights that have arrived, and some of them have come from donor countries like Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, all of which are close American partners, none of which have been prevented from sending aid because of sanctions. Now, there are some effects on the margins from sanctions. We've seen the stories of people who have tried to organize crowdfunding campaigns to do earthquake relief in Syria, and they've had those campaigns blocked. To alleviate that, America's Treasury Department came out shortly after the earthquakes, and it issued a very broad waiver covering transactions related to earthquake relief. So there are some effects on the margins from sanctions, but there has been a very quick effort to make sure that sanctions don't get in the way of sending aid to Syria. Well, you suggest that they don't hurt much, but they certainly also don't help. 
they don't help. The point of sanctions is to hobble the state, to reduce the capacity of the Syrian state. That obviously has consequences for civilians. Now, I think it's worth saying the biggest issue for them is that they are governed by a violent kleptocratic regime that was willing to destroy large parts of the country in order to stay in power. That has much greater consequences than sanctions do. That being said, they do have an impact, and it's an ongoing impact. If you look at something like the Caesar Act, an American law which was passed in 2019 that imposed the furthest reaching package of sanctions on Syria, it aims at a number of economic sectors. Two of those are the energy sector and the construction sector. Syria is a country that has widespread blackouts and fuel shortages. There is vast damage to housing and infrastructure because of the war. So if you have a package of sanctions that is meant to hamper investment in energy and construction, that is, of course, going to make it more difficult to rebuild the country. Or even to see its way through the present crisis. So it stands to reason that those at least should be paused, right? It's a very difficult dilemma. When you talk to Syrians about sanctions, some of them will say, you know, the regime is not going to rebuild. Even if you ease sanctions and give it a big pot of aid for reconstruction, that money is going to wind up stolen. It's not going to help many Syrian civilians. And that anyway, it sets a terrible precedent and it's a terrible moral decision. But you also find more and more Syrians, including those who were staunchly opposed to the Assad regime, who took part in the revolution, who will now argue, listen, sanctions are not going to achieve their political goal of compelling the regime to reform. And the only thing they do at this point is they deepen the misery of people still living in regime-held areas. There are no easy answers. It's a very difficult question, morally, politically, diplomatically. But it's a question that I think more and more governments are going to have to confront. So the Americans have loosened the screws a bit. The Saudi foreign minister hints at a, at a new tack that could be taken with Syria. There is a path for a kind of reputation rehabilitation. Do you think that's the way things will now go? I think there is certainly a path for that. But I think there's a difference between rehabilitating its reputation and unlocking large amounts of aid and financial help, which it so desperately needs. You look at the past several years, you know, the UAE, which was the first country in the Gulf to reopen its embassy in Damascus and reach out to the regime, has not invested significant amounts of money in Syria. China, which never severed ties with Syria, which is on quite good political terms with the regime, invests very little in Syria. Donors are not lining up to put money into an extremely corrupt country that has been decimated by war. So I think what we're probably going to see is a political rehabilitation of the regime, but that is not going to unlock the sort of help, unfortunately, that would make any difference for people living in regime-held areas in Syria. Thanks very much for joining us, Greg. Thank you. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. For a good number of years, property prices in the rich world just kept rising. 
meaning easy money for homeowners and landlords. These days, if your wealth is tied up in bricks and mortar, you might be getting nervous. Those house prices are tumbling. The squeeze is spreading. America, Canada, Sweden, New Zealand, Britain. But few property markets are as worrisome as South Korea's. House prices in Korea fell by 2% in December. That was December from November. It's very steep fall just for a single month. It's actually the biggest single drop since official figures began in 2003. Mike Bird is our Asia business and finance editor and is a co-host of Money Talks, our sister show on business, finance and economics. Things are looking pretty brutal, particularly in the capital city of Seoul, where prices are down by more than 20% since their peak in late October 2021. So bad news if you've just bought a house in Seoul. So what's the backstory here? How, How did South Korea get here? Well, South Korea as a country really loves investing in housing. The South Korean central bank started raising interest rates in the middle of 2021, seven months before the Federal Reserve did, and almost a year before the European Central Bank did. And that means basically that Korean households, people with mortgages in particular, have had the interest rates they pay on those mortgages steadily climbing up for quite a while now. The Bank of Korea's benchmark rate is at 3.5%, which is a 14-year high. Officials raised the rate again in January. You can see the effects of this in the broader economy as well. Private consumption fell by 0.4% in the final quarter of 2022. That's really the biggest part of most economies. This isn't helped by the fact that Korea is going through a pretty difficult time in terms of what economists would call the external performance. Exports dropped by 17% year on year in January. So there's nothing going on outside that would cushion the blow. So what can we already see in terms of the effects of all this on on Korean households? Well, Korean households, to start with, are extremely indebted. So household debt runs to about 200% of disposable income in Korea. For example, in the UK, which is also a a sort of mortgage-loving country, household debt runs to more like 148% of household disposable income. A huge proportion of South Korean housing loans are, are floating rates. Most mortgages are fixed rate in the US, which means you don't pay a different interest rate until you renegotiate your mortgage when its term runs out. In Korea, as soon as the Bank of Korea raises interest rates, you start paying more as a mortgage holder. So this hike in interest rates has fed through pretty quickly and people are really feeling the squeeze. The danger is that you get these bursts of forced selling. So instead of people moving out when they want to move out, there are people in South Korea right now really looking at their mortgage burden, looking at the money that they're paying and saying, listen, I just can't do this anymore. And when you get these periods of forced selling, what happens is prices can collapse very, very quickly. And the country has a really, really strange rental system that makes things a bit worse here. Strange rental system in what way? So the system is known as Chonsei. Basically, tenants pay enormous lump sums to their landlords, sort of 60 or 80 percent of the value of a property. It's a relic of a long time ago, Korea's rapid industrialization in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Mortgages are very hard to come by. Banks really only lent to companies. They didn't lend to households. What happens is the landlord holds the lump sum for two years. They can invest that money in whatever they want. Often they're buying other properties with the money and at the end of the two years, 
they give the cash back to their tenants. Now, when there's a market boom, when everything's going well, this is great, right? The problem in a downturn is that some landlords have invested in things that are now worth less than they were when their tenants handed them the money. You get these people who have bought these risky assets, had a bad time, lost the money, and you get a lot of stories coming out about these sudden defaults. So it really doesn't help the sort of overall economic situation having that sort of uncertainty and some people suddenly finding themselves pretty heavily out of pocket. So given those risks baked into the system in South Korea, surely the, the, the central bank is aware of them. What's, what's it going to do about all this? Well, it's a difficult one to say. There's a sort of split opinion on the matter. You have some economists that think this is going to very naturally limit the amount of interest rate hikes that the Bank of Korea can pursue, that the economic impacts are now so obvious that they can't go that much further. That's the view of Nomura, a Japanese bank that the economic researchers there who expect that the Bank of Korea is going to have to reverse course pretty soon in the spring and actually start cutting interest rates for the rest of the year. Others, including an economics consultancy called Oxford Economics, think the Bank of Korea has to keep going. It's usually a pretty conservative central bank. They're pretty worried about inflation. I think this is a hard one to call personally. These sort of housing downturns are really often what does stop a central bank from raising interest rates any further. There's a lot of economic research noting how closely aligned business cycles and, and housing markets are with each other. And, and when house prices start to come down, people really do not want to spend. They don't want to invest in other things. And you can see economic contractions happen pretty quickly. So how much can we use the case of South Korea as a kind of bellwether here? Does the, the, the strangeness of the rental market make it not a very good indicator of what might happen elsewhere? I think, to be honest, the thing that you want to look at when you're comparing these housing markets is in large part the, the household debt levels. So it offers a glimpse of what to expect for some countries. You look at places like Australia, Canada, some of the Scandinavian economies, Norway and Sweden in particular, the Netherlands, they've all got very, very high household debt levels, quite inflated property prices. And they all started raising interest rates after South Korea. So they may have a little bit further to go before the pressure feeds through to household finances in the way it has in Korea. But I do think it's a good example in general of how high house prices and high household debt can really constrain monetary policy. You look at the Bank of Korea, they're really having to worry about this situation rather than looking at what the level of inflation is as they would really prefer to do. So when you have these high household debt levels, it really stops central banks from functioning quite as they're meant to. Mike, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much. You might not know his name, but you almost certainly know his work. From Baby One More Time by Britney Spears, to Blinding Lights by The Weeknd, to Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. Max Martin is on his way to toppling John Lennon and Paul McCartney as the most successful songwriter of all time, according to the Billboard Hot 100 charts. It's an incredible accomplishment. So what can other would-be hitmakers learn from his hits? Max Martin is a very 
successful songwriter and producer who came out of Sweden in the late 1980s. And he has more number one hits than anybody since the year 2000. Chris Dallariva writes about music and data for The Economist. So over the last couple of years, I decided I was going to listen to every single Billboard Hot 100 number one. Of course, Martin has a ton of number one, so I listened to a lot of his songs. And as I went along, I was collecting data and I started noticing some trends. Go on. What trends did you see? Max Martin doesn't do a lot of press, but when he won the Polar Music Prize, which is pretty much the closest thing to like the Nobel Prize in music, the interviewer asked him, are there any changes in popular music over the last 30 years, as long as he's been working in the business? And I thought it was odd. The first thing he said was that song introductions have become shorter. So I had all this great data and I decided to sort of fact check the king of pop songwriting here to see if he was correct. And he is correct. Introductions have gotten shorter. And you can even hear that on his work. For example, Katy Perry's 2008 hit, I Kissed a Girl. This was never the way but hold on. This is sitting down and listening to all of the Billboard Hot 100 for 30 years. I mean, how long did that even take you? It took me somewhere between three and a half and four years because I was listening to just one song a day. I mean, there was no end goal here. So I just, I figured I could meander along. But that allowed me to really get into each one of those songs between 1958 and today. But more quantitatively, it does seem clear to you that that basically intros are getting shorter. Yeah, I mean, Max Martin certainly does have a point. While he was coming up in the 1980s, the average Hot 100 number one hit had 21 seconds of introductory material. You can sort of hear something like this on Queen's hit song, Another One Bites the Dust. While it's iconic, that's 21 seconds of buildup before Freddie Mercury's vocals kick in. During the 2010s, introductory length has uh, shrunk to just 12 seconds. Another great example here is Work by Rihanna and Drake. The first words come in at just 10 seconds. So this partly reflects a trend that songs in general have become shorter since the 1980s. But the thing is, they've only become 10% shorter on average, whereas introductions have become over 40% shorter. So it's not just the fact that songs are getting shorter, that intros are shorter, is that we're really trying to get to the punch very quickly. And so that trend continues even now. I mean, are we getting to the sort of zero second intro before the vocals come in? We're getting pretty close. I don't think we'll we'll ever completely get there. But yeah, in the 2020s, we're still seeing very short introductions. Recent example, Miley Cyrus's number one hit, Flowers. The vocal begins just eight seconds into the song. We were good, we were gone. Even if we look at this on a relative basis, in the 1980s, introductions took up on average 8.6% of a song. In the 2010s, they accounted for 5.4%. So again, just reinforcing this point that it's not just shorter songs in the absolute or relative sense. It's that intros are getting shorter at a much faster rate. What's behind that, though? What is it that that pop consumers are are revealing of their preferences here? So there's a couple things you can point to. First of all, people always like to point to, say, Gen Z has shorter attention spans, crave instant gratification. That's probably part of it, but I don't think it's the biggest factor 
first of all, there's just so much content out there, whether that be music or television or TikTok. Artists have to get your attention quickly. To do that, an introduction is usually out of the question. We have to hook you fast. But there's also a financial incentive here. For an artist to get paid, a user has to listen to a song on their streaming service for at least 30 seconds. So you need to, again, hook that person fast if you want to make a buck. And I think that's actually the more important factor here. Artists throughout history are always reacting to technology. For example, song introductions used to be quite short also in the middle of the 20th century, right at the start of the Hot 100 in the late 1950s and early 1960s. But there was a very different incentive that caused this. It was actually that a vinyl record, a vinyl single, could only hold so much sound. So songwriters had to work within those constraints. These days, we're just seeing a slightly different constraint, one that's built around the financial incentives that come with streaming services. So artists are always going to do this. It's not as glamorous as this idea of always just following your muse, but it's definitely part of the process that I don't think is talked about enough, how artists react to technology. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.